0: Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for your work in our lives. We pray, Father, that we would understand your purposes very, very clearly, especially in the days in which we live. Evil times, times of confusion. I pray that we would see clearly what you are doing, lest we find ourselves without firm footing. We want to be rock solid and confident in this kind of a world. We ask you, Lord, to keep us. We ask you, Lord, to reveal to us from these verses in your word through the life of Daniel, the conflict that we are going through in spiritual high places, these invisible areas that we really can't see with our eyes. And I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be focused upon your power and your ability. In Jesus' name, amen. The devil has made his way into our vocabulary, as you know, by several sayings. You've all heard them. The devil made me do it. It has been a popular saying for many, many years. That's one way to say I'm not responsible, but outside forces made me do it. Then somebody will say, I was just playing the devil's advocate. In other words, I took the weaker side of the argument to go against the stronger side, to see what it would sound like if somebody took the opposite position. Somebody will say he has a devil-may-care attitude. In other words, doesn't really matter. He's carefree. Then, of course, there's devil's food cake. All of these are sayings that have made their way into our vocabulary. The devil has become very, very popularized. It's popularized throughout our generation. There was a news article in Time magazine. Actually, back to back, several articles were written about the resurgence of demonism in America. And uh, from Time Magazine, in an article called No Sympathy for the Devil, part of the article said New York City's John Cardinal O'Connor revealed to reporters that priests had been authorized to perform two exorcisms in his archdiocese over the past year. As far as we know, he said they've been successful. The article goes on outside of the religious realm, And it says, clergy are not the only professionals concerned about the problem. Judith Schechtman, a clinical social worker for the St. Louis Police and the state of Missouri, says there is a dramatic increase in reports of serious, highly secretive satanic cults that practice bizarre rituals to cloak animal torture, drug abuse, pedophilia, and child pornography. Such cases are unusual, she says, but extremely damaging to youths. Gallup poll reported that seventy percent of all Americans believe in the devil. That's up from what it used to be. The percentages were at one time lower. Seventy percent believe in the devil. However, about half of those who said they believed in him, half of them said he was a real person. The other half said, well, he's not a real person. He is a name, a term, he's the personification of evil. He's a metaphor for evil that exists within the lives of everyone. Now, you as a Christian don't need to be convinced, I hope, of the reality of the devil. I think from personal experience you know that he exists and that he's not a metaphor. Uh, Metaphors don't inhabit herds of swine, right? like we read about in the New Testament. Metaphors don't carry on conversations with Jesus Christ out in the desert like Satan did. This is a reality, and the Bible speaks very clearly about it. But in our world, which is visible, when we see crime and corruption and satanic crimes like this, we know that it's only because there's activity in the invisible world. There's something going on backstage in the affairs of men that you can't account for with just a physical, visible explanation. Right now in this room, there are all sorts of noises, sounds going on. You can't hear them, but they're there. There's jazz, there's classical, there's hard rock. If you had the right receiver, you could hear all those various kinds of music just by turning the dial on the radio. There's all sorts of pictures right now in this room. You can't see them, but they're there. But if you had the right receiver, you put the antenna up, you can receive the waves and you can dial it in and you can get your picture. And so there is an invisible world that bisects this visible world. And in chapter 10 of the book of Daniel, we get a glimpse into it. This world, of course, we wouldn't know anything about unless it were revealed by God. Take Job, for example. Did Job know that God and the devil were carrying on a conversation with each other? Job didn't know until the end of the book that there was this cosmic conflict going on that involved him. Or Peter, when Jesus, walking down into the Kidron Valley, seemingly in a casual kind of a walk, said, Peter, Satan has been asking for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. How would that make Peter feel? Would you tell him? I prayed for you, Peter. Peter. And when you are recovered, strengthen your brethren. Peter wouldn't have known anything about this conflict unless Jesus were to reveal it to him. Chapter 10 is part of the fourth vision given to the prophet Daniel. It includes chapters 10, 11, and 12. Chapter 10 is merely an introduction to a very long vision of the future that concerns the nation of Israel from the time of King Darius to Antiochus Epiphanes, and to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, you may have noticed something in Daniel. Visions are being amplified as we go. That is, they start out small, and oftentimes the same people are involved in the next vision, but more details are given. They're expanded. The later visions simply amplify the earlier ones. Now, we're going to look at four movements in this chapter. First of all, the concern of Daniel in verses 1 through 3. Let's read it. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and I just make a mental note of that, he's the king of Persia. A message was revealed to Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian pagan nickname. The message was true, but the appointed time was long. And he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came to my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Daniel is about 85 years young in this chapter. It has been 72 years since he has been captured from Jerusalem and moved to Babylon. Now the captivity of Israel lasted how long? Seventy years. For the last two years, they have left. They're back now in Jerusalem. But Daniel is still in Babylon where he sees this vision. When we open up chapter 10, Daniel is not having a good day. You might say he has an upset stomach. He's upset. For three weeks he was mourning No breakfast, no lunch, no dinner. He was just living on the bare necessities. No cologne on his face. He didn't anoint his face at all for three full weeks. Why? What upset him? Well, he says right here it was because of a vision that he got. Some revelation that God gave to him made him upset. Now, my Bible and perhaps some of yours in the New King James says, the appointed time was long. The New International Version translates it. It was a message that concerned a great war. It was a message that concerned a great war. If you read chapter 11, and we will before this series is over, Daniel gets a vision of future atrocities that will happen to his people, something very devastating in the future. He's been in Babylon 72 years. He's prayed that the children of Israel will go back, build the city, build the temple. They're back. They're working. But Nehemiah chapter 2, which is happening at the same period of time, tells us that the people were encountering great opposition. They were there to build the work for God. But they were being opposed by so many enemies in that territory. And now Daniel gets a vision of things that are going to happen to his people all the way up until the latter days of history, as we'll read about in just a few minutes. He gets this vision, and it upsets him. You know, it's funny. A lot of people say they want to know the future. They try all the time. They look in their astrology column. They waste money on the astrology booklets that are in the supermarket. I want to know what it says for Pisces. What's going to happen to me this month? What can I expect? I want to know the future. No, you don't want to know the future. There are certain things in your future that would be too painful if you found out. What if God revealed to you exactly your last days upon the earth and how you would die? Would you like to know that right now? Would you like to know what loved ones will die when in your future? I wouldn't. I'd rather take the grace that God gives when I have those experiences. I don't want to know my future. The future can be upsetting. Jesus said, I have many things to t- say to you, but you can't, you can't handle them now. When John was on the island of Patmos writing the book of Revelation, and he gets a picture of what's going to happen to the world in the tribulation period. The angel says, here's the scroll, now eat it. This is all done in a vision, of course. And he eats the scroll of the future revelation. And it says, when I ate it, it became bitter in my stomach because of the bitter experiences that were going to happen to Israel. And so Daniel, knowing his people are back, severe conditions, seeing the future wars that are written about in chapter 11, becomes very, very concerned. His reaction? He didn't go, well, that's a shame. Let me change the channel. He became desperate in prayer for three weeks. He fasted, he mourned, and he prayed because we read about that later on. The angel said, I've come in response to your prayer three weeks ago while you started to pray. The church needs to become desperate again. We live in a day and age where we, too, are watching things, patterns, develop in our nation, our country. We've left God. We're in a post-Christian era. We're watching the nation go down a path headed toward destruction. We read about the politics that are going on, the policies that are being passed. In the governments of our nation, in courtrooms of our country, criminals going free, then we flip the channel, we see what's happening in Rwanda, flip the channel, see what's happening in Bosnia, and we channel surf, all the while we become desensitized to what's going on. Would to God that when we see the things happening to our country as such, it would really bother us. It would make us desperate enough to get involved, to pray, like Daniel did. Do you get upset when you hear that 60 churches a week closed in this country? Places like India, China, churches are opening up weekly. Sixty churches every week close in this country. Does it upset you when you read that we sent troops over to Haiti, some with 15 rounds of ammunition only, 15 bullets, but spent 260-some million dollars to give them unlimited condoms while they're in Haiti? It should make us desperate. You know, what kind of a country is this, going down that path? That's what Daniel saw, the future atrocities. Paul Harvey, in his commentary to the Los Angeles Times, wrote, Suppose one day our civilization were destroyed and the cities laid waste. Suppose in 20,000 years an archaeologist from another time were poking around in the ruins of our city. If he should dig up just one penny, he would know much about us. The coin, a blend of metals, would tell him that we were miners and understood the science of metallurgy. By the perfect circle shape of the coin, he would deduce that we understood geometry. The wheat on the back of the penny would tell him that we were a great agricultural society, that our fine crops were a major source of our wealth. The date on the face of the coin would show him that we understood arithmetic, that we had a calendar. The portrait of Lincoln would mark us as artists who had an advanced culture. The words United States would let him know that we were a federated group of local communities bound by a strong central government. The phrase, e pluribus unum, would tell him that we were scholars who knew foreign languages. The word liberty on the face of the penny would let the archaeologists know that our country sought to guarantee freedom for every man. And finally, the phrase, in God we trust, would confirm, confirm that we had a moral law. It would let him know that we had grown strong and mighty with God's leading. And then, considering the penny, he would have to wonder, why did that civilization go astray? Now you're watching it right now. A nation that once trusted in God at the beginning, have ruled God out, And you're watching them go down a path just like Daniel looked into the future and saw what would happen with the judgment that was coming. The atrocities spoken about in the future chapters. And it bothered him. He was concerned over it. You might ask at this point, well, why is Daniel still in Babylon? I mean, he prayed for the release of the Jews. Seventy years was up. He's been there still two years. Everybody left. He stayed. He's a model Jewish leader. Why didn't he go back? Hey, keep in mind, he's 85 years old, all right? Give him a break. He wasn't in any condition to travel, probably. He probably thought, I can do more for you on my knees here in Babylon than I could on my feet in Jerusalem. So you go, and I'm supporting you in prayer. And it was a good place for him. Next, in verse 4, we begin the second movement of the chapter after the concern of Daniel, the coming of the messenger to Daniel. On the 24th day of the first month... As I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Ufaz; His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire. His arms and his feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, While I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. You know, Daniel has seen an eyeful in his lifetime, has he not? This guy has seen so many visions, you could keep him on Christian television all of his life, and he still would be able to have show after show after show, all that he's seen. But this, in chapter 10, is the very pinnacle of everything he saw. He has seen kingdoms come and go from his perspective into the future. But now at 85 years old, he gets a vision of glory. He swoons. It sends him to his knees. He's faint. Remember, he's 85 years old. His heart isn't what it used to be. Seeing this vision now causes this almost convulsive response in Daniel and throws him to the ground with his face to the ground. What a contrast. This vision of glory is in comparison to Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's vision also of a man, head of gold, silver, and then brass, and then legs of iron and feet of clay, speaking of human kingdoms. And then Nebuchadnezzar set up this image of a man, all of gold, soon to be destroyed by God off the earth. Contrast those visions with the vision Daniel gets of a man who is glorified. Now, first of all, in this vision, the guy's wearing white linen Robe. Not too unusual. That's what priests wore oftentimes, white linen garments. But the rest of the description defies it being any human being. I've never seen a man with brass feet glowing in a fire or torches coming out of his eyes. Have you? This is some heavenly vision. He says his body was like beryl or yellow jasper, would be the stone. This gold, iridescent hue coming out of his body. And when he saw it, he fell face down to the ground. A lot of people look at this vision and they think, Oh, it's probably the angel Gabriel. I don't think so, because Gabriel shows up in chapter 9. He doesn't look like this, and it doesn't cause Daniel to do this. I don't think it's an angel at all. I agree with most every commentator on this particular chapter that says this is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It's called a theophany or a Christophany. It's where Jesus makes an apparition in vision form in the Old Testament. I'll tell you why I'm convinced of that. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 is also apocalyptic. It speaks of the future. It is by John. It's New Testament. But listen how similar his vision of Jesus Christ is to the one we read about in Daniel. Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see right in a book Send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white, like wool, as white as snow. His eyes... Like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You get the idea that mortal man has trouble seeing the glory of God, right, in this present body. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and who is dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. This vision that Daniel sees also, I think it's the same vision of John and Daniel, just seen from two different time elements. This vision that Daniel sees, brass, lightning, is a vision of two things, judgment and glory. Judgment and glory. In the midst of the conflict and the vision of what's going to happen to Israel in the future, a great war that causes him to be really desperate in prayer, in the midst of that, he also sees a vision of the glory of Christ coming in judgment. It's sort of the ultimate end of the story. Now, this is a pattern you see throughout the book. It's there for this reason. God, in His omniscience, knowing everything, can reveal the future of humanity. With all of our stupid choices and where those choices will lead, He can show us the future through prophecy. On the other hand, God, in His love, reveals the ultimate outcome that he will reign and he will rule. We see that throughout the whole book. We see kingdoms come and kingdoms go, others rise, others fall, but ultimately a final kingdom that we should always keep fresh in our mind lest we become overwhelmed with what we see right now around us in this kingdom. We see the final outcome. We get concerned, right? when we read, when we watch television, when we see policies being formed by presidents and governors and all sorts of people, get concerned. It's like, God, God, you up there? Are you still around? Uh, we've lost control. No, we haven't. We haven't lost control. I've read the last chapter of this book. It turns out all right. It's going to be all right. He's still going to rule. He's still going to reign. He's still sitting upon the throne. Here's the question. Where are you looking at? As you travel down the path of this thing called your life, as you're walking and you are making decisions in your lifetime, what are you looking at? Where are your eyes fixed? Where's your spiritual vision? Are you looking merely at the visible world, the war, the famine, the politics? If you are, you are an overwhelmed person. You're bent over. You're laden with troubles. If your eye is on the invisible world, that's good, maybe. Some of you have your eyes and your vision fixed on the wrong side of the invisible world. The devil, they're after me, those demons. You're running down the path with your head looking backward. Who's chasing me? Oh, demons are real, yes, but your sights should be fixed on the invisible world, but the right side, where God is still sovereign and in control. He's still upon his throne. Daniel is convulsed, sick, concerned, but he gets a vision of Jesus Christ, one who comes in victory and in judgment. This is an important point to me. I think it is all the difference between a stable and an unstable Christian, a victorious and a defeated person. Let me read you an article from the American Automobile Association. They said, recent studies of U.S. highways have shown an astonishingly high incidence of roadside collisions. That is, where drivers have collided with cars parked legally on the side of the road. Most of the drivers were not under the influence of alcohol. Most of the drivers were not on medication. Most of the collisions occurred during favorable weather conditions. As safety experts studied these statistics to determine the reason for the sheer number of these collisions, they came up with a fascinating explanation. They call it the moth effect. The moth effect. Just as a moth is drawn unconsciously to a flame, a driver tends to involuntarily steer his car to where his eyes are focused. Thus, if his vision locks onto a vehicle parked by the side of the road rather than focusing on the road in front of him, he will inevitably collide with the car. You got any mountain bikers in here? If you're a mountain biker, you know this principle very well as you're going down a path, down your mountain bike trail. If you happen to be on a ledge, If you look off the side of the ledge and down where you might end up if you're not careful, guess what happens? You start going that direction, right? And you notice that wherever you fix your eyes, your bike starts veering. And so mountain bikers will look way ahead of their front tire onto the path and where the path is going. And it's amazing how turning your head and focusing your eyes determines where you go. Well, that same principle holds true in life itself. You will hit What you look at, you will crash into and be stuck onto whatever you're looking at. If you're looking at just the bad stuff, just the problems, you will live and be stuck and fixated right there. Your visible circumstances, all the bad stuff. If you're fixated upon Satan, demons, they're after me, guess what? That's all you'll be involved in. If your eyes are fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of of what is going to happen and what is happening now, you'll be stuck right there. That means we need to gaze very, very firmly into the supernatural world in a spiritual manner by reading things like this book, which gives us a very good picture of Jesus Christ and God who is in control. Things like Isaiah chapter 6, In the year the King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne. The train of His robe filled the temple. And the angel said, Holy, 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 and glory filled the earth. He needed to see that at that kind of a time. You need to read your Bible, pray, have good heart-to-heart talks with your Father. Get your sights adjusted. It's been well said, the devil is not afraid of a Bible that has dust on it. This is a picture book of your Savior. You read it, you get a clear picture of who He is. You leave it alone gets dusty. devil's not afraid of that. And so Daniel sees this vision. Now let's move to the third movement of this uh, chapter, the conversation with the angel in verses 10 through 12. And I suggest this is a very different being than the previous one. Suddenly a hand touched me, made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, now he speaks audibly, the previous being spoke like the voice of a multitude. And Daniel was face down. O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I spoke to you. Stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While I was speaking this word, while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. You think, oh, this poor old guy. All that he's been through, this 85-year-old man seeing the vision. The angel says, get up. And he's shaking as he's listening to him. And he said to me, do not fear, Daniel. For from the first day that you sent your heart to understand... To humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Does that speak to your heart? As soon as you start praying on earth, God hears it in heaven. There's no long-distance wiring or satellite it has to go through or operator that says, I'm sorry, you've been disconnected. Daniel, as soon as you started praying, it was heard, I was sent. It was heard in heaven. Whatever goes on in your visible world, when you bring it to God in prayer, it's heard in the courtroom of the invisible world in heaven. God starts moving whenever we pray. I'll tell you what that means. It means we shouldn't give up. It means we shouldn't say, oh, I prayed for this and it hasn't happened. I'll forget it. Jesus said, you ought always to pray and not lose heart. The King James says, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Don't quit. Don't quit. Keep at it. Case in point the early church. For the first time, they started getting persecuted. They didn't know what to do. Their leaders are in jail. James and Peter get thrown in a Roman prison. To make it worse, James gets his head cut off. He's the pastor of the Jerusalem church. Peter is left. What does the church do? They don't go down to the jail and start picketing with signs saying, Release Peter, release Peter, we demand our rights. They took out their ultimate weapon, the smart bombs. And they launched that baby, locked it in on target, and prayed that Peter would be released from prison. Guess what happened? God sent an angel, sprung him. And it says in Acts chapter 12, While they were praying, Peter was released and came and knocked on the door of the house where they were having the prayer meeting while they were praying. Now, it wasn't really a prayer of faith as you read the story because as Peter's out there knocking, hoping the guards don't see him, Rhoda, the girl inside, comes to the door, sees it's Peter, and she gets all frightened. She thinks it's a ghost. She thinks it's Peter's angel. Well, let me tell you something. I don't care if it's Peter or his angel. Wouldn't you open the door? She didn't open the door. She ran into this mighty group of prayer warriors praying in great faith, And said, it's Peter. He's at the door. Your prayers are answered. They looked at her and said, you're nuts. It's in the scripture. You are beside yourself. You're crazy. Now imagine, probably when something like this. Father, we believe in Jesus' name that you can release Peter from prison. You know he's there. Please send someone or an angel to release him. Guys, it's me. Oh, it's not him. Forget it. You're nuts. Not really a prayer of faith, is it? But nonetheless, that was their ultimate weapon. Their ultimate weapon is, let's pray. Let's launch our smart bomb. And Peter was released. I get kind of irritated when people come up and say, I guess there's nothing left to do except pray. Excuse me, I think that's an insult to God. It only demonstrates... A person's ignorance of the power of prayer with that kind of a statement. It would be your first recourse if you knew how powerful that weapon is. Daniel, as soon as you started praying, I split. I was sent and dispatched from heaven to earth. Now, bear in mind, when we pray and God starts working, if that smart bomb of prayer is launched under favorable conditions, The Bible gives those conditions, we won't get into them now, we have previously. But under right conditions, it's very, very powerful. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James said. doesn't mean that you're going to see power or results immediately. As even we see in the next few verses, there is a delay. But the answer is on the way. There's a story of a woman married to a man with two kids a very well-to-do family who lived in comfort in a little village in England. The husband died, leaving her to be a widow. To raise the two children, other difficulties happened in this family and forced the mother, her young son, and daughter, who was an invalid and had to be bedridden, into a slum in London. One evening they went to church, the son and the mother, heard a gospel message, responded to it, gave their lives to Jesus Christ, started attending regularly, weekly, that church. The church members did not know of their financial difficulties because this woman thought, I'm not going to tell anybody my need. God knows my need. They would have gladly helped had they known, but they didn't know. Their money finally ran out. When it completely ran out, they had no resources, the mom took her son and knelt at the bed of that invalid daughter and prayed that God would do something, do something, we at the end of the row. The next morning, the mailman delivered them a card from somebody in New Zealand, a week's worth of his wages. He was a working man. It was his paycheck that was sent to them because he had heard that her husband had died. Here's the catch to that whole thing, however. She received it the next morning that she prayed. It was sent five months earlier. From New Zealand by boat to the village where they lived. The postmaster found out they didn't live there anymore, sent it to London. They got it five months after it was sent, but she opened it right when she needed it. Delays are not denials. Her prayers were answered, but the thing had been sent five months before. Oh, God's timing is incredible, isn't it? Now let's look at the final movement of this chapter, the fourth and final one the conflict in the heavens verse 12, the angel said, hey, don't be afraid, Daniel. I've come to give you understanding. I've been sent, and I've come because of your words, verse 12. Verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I have been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men, touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision of my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength." For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. I tell you, that would be an encouragement for an angel to say that to me. You're greatly beloved of God. By the way, there's only two people in the whole Bible given that title. John who wrote the book of Revelation, and Daniel, who wrote this book. It's interesting that the two guys who wrote the prophecies of the future were both given this term by God. Actually, John first gave it to himself. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not that he doesn't love everybody else, but there was a special note of that. So he said, Peace to you, be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said... Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. When I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. The angel said, Three weeks ago, as soon as you started praying, I left to come and answer you. I was detained for three weeks by this character called the Prince of Persia, not the King of Persia. The King of Persia was Cyrus, mentioned in verse 1. This Prince of Persia does not seem to be a human being, but an angelic force. After all, the angel said, This Prince of Persia detained me. Men don't successfully detain angels. This Prince of Persia Seems to be a demonic being, perhaps dispatched by Satan into Persia to resist God's work for the nation of Israel at that time and in the future. He said afterwards, I've got to go back. I still have to take care of this prince of Persia. Michael's going to help me out. But then there's this prince of Greece that is coming. It doesn't seem like it's a man, but that Satan in his organization dispatched a demonic being, perhaps one to take over or to inhabit the king of Persia, we don't know. But this fight was something that happened in the spiritual realm. I believe we are given a glimpse. The curtain is open, sort of like the Wizard of Oz. And you see who's behind the curtain for just a brief glimpse that there are demonic rulers in heavenly places. Daniel wouldn't have known that unless God revealed it to him. Which makes me wonder if the prince of Persia was this bad. What about the Prince of San Francisco? Los Angeles, New York, or all these other places where so much crime, pornography, and stuff exists. You wonder what they must be like. There are angelic influences, good and evil. Satan is the commander-in-chief of rebel forces. They are well-organized. In fact, a third of the angels in heaven fell with Satan, Revelation chapter 12 teaches us. A third of the angels rebelled, defected, and became demons. And this is what Paul wrote. He said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Kind of spooky, isn't it? A third of the angels rebelled, and they don't like you. Now that's the bad news. And unfortunately, many Christians get fixated on the demons. The good news that is usually not mentioned is that two-thirds of them didn't defect. So for every demon, there's at least two good angels. As we see here, one demon and two angels are fighting this battle. And we should remember that. Satan on his best day can't come close to the champ. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, Satan is organized, granted. Unfortunately, Christians, some of them, love the idea of delving into this spiritual realm. I think more than they should. For some reason, they get their kicks out of it. There's a spiritual warfare movement going on where people talk about territorial demons. And we're waging war against the demon of this town and this state and this country and they think it's important that you find out their names their identity kind of name rank and serial number find out who they are identify them and drive them out you engage in warfare with these territorial demons unfortunately that fire has been fueled by fiction Frank Peretti wrote a book it's a good book but it is fiction he even says so it's called this present darkness where Christians wage war against hordes of demons trying to take over their towns and their churches and their country. It's a fascinating book. It'll have you riveted on the edge of your seat. There's only one problem with it. Many Christians use it as a theological text. And it's a sad day when the church takes a fiction book over the Scripture for its theology. But they're doing just that. And they go on turf wars with the devil. Demon safari trying to identify them. We've got to find out. There's not one shred of scriptural evidence mandating Christians to go hunting for demons, finding their names, and calling them out of their city. Ever. You say, Daniel 10, there it is, Prince of Persia. Okay, that's my point. In Daniel chapter 10, the battle is taking place in heaven, not on earth. It involves one demon, two angels, and absolutely no human beings. God doesn't say, Daniel, there's a problem. I sent an angel. He got stopped. Bind the demons now, Daniel. Not one shred of evidence for this. This is, God, that's not going to send you. He'll send the terminator. Michael. Michael was dispatched against the demon, the prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece I want to close by giving you a practical application you have loved ones you have situations and you're praying for them and you're not seeing results and you're getting a little discouraged those delays are not denials keep praying for those loved ones folks Yeah, but I've been praying for years. If you only knew the spiritual conflict, perhaps, that's going on for their souls. Don't quit. Keep at it. And as you're going through these conflicts in the visible world, in your conscience that there's a cosmic conflict going on, make sure that you have your eyes fixed. The moth effect. But fixed on the right spot. Fixed on the light of Jesus Christ. Your victor, your champ. There was a woman flying on an airplane, afraid of flying, afraid of heights. She was in the first seat. Her hands were clutching the sides of the seat, white-knuckled. She was still on the runway. (laughs) As they started taxiing, she was looking up out the window into the sky where she's going to be going, the moth effect. And as she's going down the runway and it starts taking off and climbing a few feet, she's just sweating. A minister recognized her as a Christian woman and said, Dear woman, the Bible says, Jesus said, I'm with you always. She said, It didn't say that, preacher. He said, Lo, I am with you always. Lo, I am with you always. We're going up. That's a misquote. You're traveling on the path. Where are you looking? Martin Luther, boy, what a guy. He had a lot of conflict. Progenitor of the great reformation period in Europe a man who wrote extensively about demonic attacks listen to one of the songs he wrote and Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us The prince of darkness grim We tremble not for him His rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure One little word shall fell him. Can't wait to hear that word when it's completely over. But until then, in the midst of this conflict, gaze at the future glory, the sovereignty of your God who's still in control. Father, we can end this study with great confidence, knowing that we're going back into a world with reports and with all sorts of visible things that would seem to indicate that you have lost control. Nothing could be further from the truth. You are still in control. You reveal the consequences of the choices of men, but at the same time in your love you reveal that the chapters are not over yet. There's still a final scene to be played out. And even as times do become tougher and tougher in this country and through the world, you promised they would. We know that you're still on the throne. And there's a kingdom that's waiting for us. And I pray that we would walk with our vision fixed like a moth in the right place on Jesus. For His sake we pray. Amen.